This podcast is dedicated to the proposition that every Christian should be a constant and devoted reader of the Bible, and that the primary business of the church and its ministry is to lead, foster, and encourage people in this life-changing habit. Welcome to our discussion today on the book of Colossians, one of the letters by Paul. Only four chapters in this book, and we've been challenged to read it seven times this week, so sure everyone here has had a good, at least initial, dive into the book of Colossians. Four chapters, but jam-packed with all kinds of good things in here. And hopefully a lot has stood out to you as you've been reading it. So let's just open it up. If there's anything that stood out to you, jump right in and let us know what it is. Colossians, for me, is really kind of bullish. This is our fourth one of the letters that we're going through. It's almost a wrap-up in a way that... Like it had, it's a lot of stuff that was previously hit. Like we talked last week about the family structure and the rules that Paul put out for that. And they cover that again. I'm looking through right now. One of my favorite lines out here, if I can find it, Jesus is the visual representation of the invisible God. I think it was mm. 15 verse 15 in chapter one. That is, I haven't highlighted because I love that too. Thank you, Dave. I'm horrible right here. I'm like looking through them. I can't find it. Yeah, Christ, Christ, uh, yeah, 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is and supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realm and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the Odyssey world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and holds on to all creation together. Christ has always been there. Even before he was Jesus, he was Christ. Yeah, I had to highlight it as well. Just, you know, I'm into apologetics, and that's a point of contention, especially from Islam. They'll say, where in scripture does Jesus ever say the words, I am God? And he says it in multiple places, technically. He asks a disciple, you see it here in Colossians from Paul, and then obviously there's the famous where he says, I am, right, to the Pharisees. So that was definitely something that stood out to me. Good catch, Ben. This is, you could probably cross-reference this also with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on through the Word, and the Word, it goes on to say the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's kind of like predating Jesus's incarnation here on this earth as the Word, as the creator of the universe, and Paul is just simply reiterating that here. When I first started reading the Bible, it used to almost bugged me when I would say Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. Because I used to think of Christ as, that was actually like a family name, like that was his, his last name, where Christ is his mm. title. It's right. just, so now when I see it, I automatically just start saying Christ Jesus, even if I said Jesus Christ. Mm. Because to me, a title should come first. Yeah. You know, so like, James King, it's King James. While we're on that, you jumped into that, and it says beautiful that chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. But just backing up a bit, as we read this enough times, and you know, I start to see things that tie in for me. So I go back again, chapter 1, 9 to 14. Without reading all of that, Paul's talking about not stopping praying for them. What was going on at Colossae, which I think is important, we know this, just like in other churches that Paul addressed letters to, in Colossae, there was, again, a mix of religions, if you will. There was the agnostics, the Judaism going on. And yes, they believed in Christianity, but they were tainting it with other things. So 
What Paul does here in verse 9 to 14, he immediately sets groundwork to battle the corruption of Christianity, is what I call it, with the mystical and the legalistic parts of Judaism. He didn't want that, and he had heard that that was what was going on. Then where you referenced, Ben, 15 to 20, I would say, going from verse 15 to 20, now he definitely counters that mixing, I call it, of religions with a better understanding of Jesus Christ. And this is so important. You pointed this out, but can't overlook the importance of this 15 to 20, because this is what these small four chapters are all about. The importance of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. He gives us it. Knowing the real Jesus helps us stay away from the counterfeit, no matter how it's packaged. That's what Paul is saying here to them, and that's what he's saying to us. We need to know the real Jesus, and he gives it to us in those verses 15 through 20. It's interesting that you use the word counterfeit because one thing that Colossae was known for was its angel worship, worshiping angels and things like that. And again, just kind of like this mixture of things, talking to a mutual friend of Lenny and mine who works at a bank, and I was asking her how they train you at a bank to spot counterfeit money. As we were talking about, it's just like basically they don't train you to spot counterfeit money. You just spend so much time counting real money that when a counterfeit comes across, like immediately it sticks out like a sore thumb. You can't even not notice it. And she was saying how it's happened to her a couple of times where there has been a counterfeit. It's like immediately you feel it, the texture, the look, the everything. You just immediately know that something is wrong. Why? Because you spend so much time with the real and genuine that anything counterfeit stands out like a sore thumb. And I believe that's what Paul is trying to do here is get people yeah. so familiar with the real and genuine savior of the world, Jesus Christ, that as soon as you see anything contrary, you're like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. This is a counterfeit here. This something's not right here. It's funny that you brought up money like that because I immediately thought of one of my past jobs. Somebody used a counterfeit $100 bill and I'm counting the drawer at the end of the night. And luckily I was there with my managers so or be able to take the hit for this. I went and said, Mike, this isn't real. Hmm. He takes it and we hold it up to the light. And I was like, well, it's passing the light past. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't feel right. So he went and he took one of those markers and sure enough, the marker, what uh, I forget what color it was when it's fake, but it showed up with the fake color. And he's like, you know what? Just deposit it. Let the bank deal with it. Well, you know, for us, the marker is the word. It's the scripture to compare. I mean, when someone comes across with that gospel, you know, you open up your Bible or if you have a question. I mean, do it right there on the spot. All throughout history, you see that the devil or Satan, he mounts up these massive attacks on Jesus and on the church and on humanity, right? So, you know, in the time after Jesus, you know, Paul's time, you had the Gnostics, which was a major attack on the church and the character that was Jesus. You know, in our day and age, you see that there's the attack on the historicity of Genesis, right? Of the creation story, be it evolution, et cetera, right? You're the age of the earth. All throughout history, you see the devil is convincing people, be it the Enlightenment movement from earlier Europeans. To me, it's one of those things where if we always have the word there for us when we study, it doesn't matter who's coming at us. It doesn't matter if it's people that have the wrong gospel. It doesn't matter if it's erroneous science. It doesn't matter because we have our faith. We have God on our side, so who can stop us if we have the message, you know, that gospel brings. One thing I found interesting, and again, you folks know that I like to delve into the historical cultural products. And you may already know this, but maybe for our readers or listeners, uh, Colossae, it wasn't a big city. You know, like when we talk about Ephesus or some Rome or some of the other cities that Paul addressed letters to or where he was, but it was known just 
for the record for its fabric dyes. By the time Paul wrote his letter there, it started to fade in its prosperity. And it actually perished in an earthquake in 60 AD, not too long after this. You can find that in that historian Tacitus. I think you uh, alluded to him a couple times too, John. But I wanted to point out the reason for the historical part is if we read this and if you read the history of this, Paul never visited there. That's not unusual for places, but he not even not visited there. He never started a church there. He never did anything there. But his love and concern for this church that he neither planted nor visited demonstrates the power of Christian love. We've been talking about love, and it just this struck me. I don't know if it struck you folks, but the love we've been talking about, that's all we really need if we can show love to each other. And Paul demonstrates that for us unbelievably, his love and concern for this church that he had nothing to do with. He'd never been there, and, and I don't mean in the sense that he, he sent the letter so he loved them, but he didn't have anything to do with starting it, going there, anything. And yet, he sends this beautiful letter to them. I don't know if you pondered that at all, but I did, and it struck me hard because of how much we talk about love in our group here and how much we want to say that we love. And Jesus said, here is the greatest commandment and then the second greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor. Think about Paul's love. That's all I have to say. Yeah, when, you know, it's interesting that in 4 verse 9, he references Onesimus and... Onesimus, if you recall, was a slave, a servant at that time to someone named Philemon. So Philemon, the book of Philemon is basically Paul writing to Philemon saying, hey, Philemon, your servant Onesimus apparently did something wrong. Like he did something that justified Onesimus getting put into prison, getting punished for something, has this encounter with Paul. Um, has his life change around somehow, and then Paul sends him back. And we see in Colossians 4.9, he says, I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. So he's sending him back there. I'm kind of curious, is if, you know, Colossians or the scroll that he sends to the church, and then in there, there's like an extra piece of paper that's wrapped in there, and it's just to Philemon. Uh, as we learn in church history, Philemon actually becomes essentially the leader of the church there. And in Philemon, Paul is basically saying, look, Philemon, your servant is coming back, and I expect you not to punish him. If there's any debt that he has, charge it to my account. And I don't need to remind you, but I'm going to remind you that you owe me your very soul. So basically, he's just trying to say, Philemon, you, you got to take it easy on my boy Onesimus as he's coming back here. But again, so it's interesting, these relationships that were there. And again, like you said, he'd never even visited the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're talking about Judah there is Philemon and Philemon and Onesimus is forgiveness. Paul is, is right. saying, forgive me. In essence, that's what he's saying. Forgive. And haven't we talked about that? You know, I prayed for that, you know, that I have forgiveness toward people. And that's what Paul is professing here. Forgiveness, love, Christian love. I mean, it's all right here for us if we could, you know, it's banging us on our heads if we can only let it get through. Yeah, that's one thing that stood out to me, too, was all the different names that Paul drops in this letter. Because you don't hear him reference as many people, but for me, it, it conveyed the sense of the church expanding out, it's branching out, and there's these, I don't want to call them like, you know, foot soldiers, but there's these people in the army of the Lord spreading the gospel, I think. Tychius is one of them. You said Onesimus, Barnabas, Mark, 
I mean, over and over again, you know, Epiphras, who I think founded the church there in Colossae. So just really, for out of all the letters, it's the one that is the most name heavy that I've seen so far. Another interesting thing about the names too, in that I think Timothy is probably one of the most underrated. I was going to talk about Timothy, but my daily Bible one, and I talk about Timothy and the way that Paul talks about Timothy is like, Timothy is his boy loves that yeah well that, not only that like timothy co-authors a lot of the what we call the pauline epistles timothy's a co-author in the you know we see that in colossians 1 1 this letter is from paul chosen by the will of god to be an apostle of christ she's in from our brother timothy they're writing them together perhaps timothy is actually doing the physical writing as paul is dictating but really it's a collaborative effort and many of the pauline epistles actually are collaborative between kind of mentor and mentee student and teacher collaboratively writing these letters to the different churches throughout, you know, these different locations. We, we know the history now. He never made it to the Church of Colossians. No. Lenny, anything stand out to you? In this short letter, I, I love that Apostle Paul continues to set the stage with a nice heart-filled greeting on how God has chosen him to be a leader and to be a carrier of the gospel and how he humbly continues to talk about how much he prays for the churches and how he tells them to grasp onto the gospel and how good it is for people to continue to practice following Jesus that closely through prayer and through love. I mean, ultimately, that's what it's all about. And throughout Colossians, I continue to see that. The second verse, it's already a prayer here. We are writing to God, holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers in Christ. May our Father give you grace and peace. Right there, you've already prayed. I'm glad you brought that up, Ben, because by now you guys know, I used to gloss over the greeting. I think I told you that and go through it. This was when I was much younger, when I read the Bible a number of times. But now I focus on that greeting that Paul gives. There is so much in there, and I don't want people to gloss over that there you think that i'm, I'm going to back up to verse one actually ben and somebody last week had asked what an apostle was i think judy gave a definition i want to revisit that because paul says again and he uses this a lot this letter is from paul chosen by the will of god to be an apostle so if we look up the greek apostolos it means one cent and i think judah went over that last week but as i go deeper into this it says apostle at its deepest level an apostle denotes an authorized spokesperson for God, one who is commissioned and empowered to act as his representative. Think about that. Spokesperson for God, commissioned and empowered to act as his representative. You can't go past that. You can't just say apostle and keep reading this thing here. It, there's so much power in that. Paul knows that, and he knows that he's acting for God. Then let's go on to the verse you just read, Ben. We are writing to God's holy people in the city who are faithful brothers and sisters. But look at the last part of that verse two. May God our Father give you grace. And you reference that in peace. Grace. We talk about grace, and for me, I almost just slid by this when I was reading it. But may God give you grace. What is that? That's God's unconditioned goodwill toward men and women, toward all men and women. If we just read that and go by this introduction, which is so easy to do, we are missing so much. Chapter three is the most impactful. All week long, I kind of was, you know, slacking on reading this and I ended up, you know, reading it yesterday and today. But the sentiment of chapter three, where it says, uh, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
you know, for me, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, who is Jesus? He is the slain lamb. He is the person who gave up his life for everyone. If they'll take up the gift and declare him the Lord of their life, making him the master. So you, you are, at least for me, my understanding with God is that I'm forfeiting my earthly life here and I'm giving it away. I'm making myself a complete and utter servant to God and trying to be totally obedient and be a good servant. And just like it says it right here, it says, not on earthly things, for your life is now hidden with Christ. So my life is now up in heaven. It's hidden with Christ. I'm actually going to be living up there, essentially, if I stay faithful to God and I trust in God. So that's the part that sticks out of me. You know, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It happens to be something I quote all the time. That greed is idolatry because it's easy in our culture, a capitalist society, to want to store away all your acorns, to want to consume. I'm looking around and I see I have my $15,000 motorcycle out there. And I'm like, why did I even buy that? You know how much further that money could have went if I was being charitable? I have this taking on the Holy Spirit being poured into me. I have this Im immense sense of, I don't want to call it shame or guilt, but I feel compelled to use my resources for things different now rather than for my own enjoyment. But to continue on with the verse in chapter three, verse seven, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And this has to do totally with what's going on in the world right now, right? Yeah. We are all one in Christ. I know Judah gave a couple of great sermons the past couple of weeks at Thrive, where he talked about that. You know, there is no race but the human race to God. Do you know what I mean? There is no divides politically. The media may draw the lines for you and say, where do you stand? And they're trying to put you into a box. But as Christians, we're setting our minds on things above, not on earthly things. For me, the Holy Spirit's been drilled this into my head. The result of pursuing Christ like that is to continue to pick up your cross. Colossians 2, 6 says, and now as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. And a lot of people think that just because we've accepted Jesus, all right, he'll do the rest. And then our roots don't go really below the surface. They're pretty much on top. And when you go pull a weed, it comes out so easily, but weed spreads like wildfire. It spreads everywhere and it's bad. It kills your vegetables. It kills your plants. It gets under your foundation and it messes things up, but you have to let your roots grow a lot deeper. And then it says, then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. And here's the thing. If you stay above the surface with digging into God's word, then you'll start to believe the philosophies of other people, the nonsense that other people might be thinking, trying to teach because you don't really know for yourself. You gotta be careful too. It's like a fine line. If you're not digging into God's word to know these things, then anybody can sound like they know what they're talking about. I would definitely like to hear everyone's thoughts, seeing that I respect all of your guys' thoughts on scripture. I'm unpacking chapter three like that because there's to me there's so much that's in that chapter worthy of us discussing john i'm going to summarize it up for you because i appreciate you bringing it up and i had mentioned earlier that to me colossians is about the supremacy of christ 
that's what I'm getting out of it. In the verse you read, I mean, you read a number of them things, and it was beautiful, but on chapter 3, verse 11, at the end of it, I just want to read, you read it, but I want to read the way my book reads, because I underlined the first part of it. And if this doesn't sum it up for me, this is, you, you asked the question, John, this is how I feel. My book says, Christ is all that matters. It goes on to say, and he lives in all of us, but just that first part, Christ is all that matters. That's all I need to know. Right there. You want to know what I think of it? Right there. Christ is all that matters, period. End of story. That's powerful right there. That whole idea, Christ is all that matters. I think we need to get t-shirts made up. Christ is all that matters. And so many other things we try to make these other things matter, but it's really Christ that matters. And all of this kind of harkens back to beginning here, where it says to set your sights on the realities of heaven. We are citizens of heaven, not of this earth. We are his ambassadors here on this earth. And I like the whole visual. Christ certainly died and was resurrected, but he's relaying that, or, or he's uh, superimposing that on us as well, that in verse 3, it says, for you died in this life, and your real life is hidden. I'm going to go back to verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life, so we had to go through this dying, dying to my old self, but you've been raised to this new life now. Through the power of the Holy Spirit living within you, you've been raised to this new life, and now it's our opportunity to put our thoughts on things of heaven and not simply things of this earth. I think the question for reflection becomes how much of our thoughts are placed on things of this earth rather than our thoughts being placed on things of heaven. I recently went back on the, on Twitter and I don't know if you guys ever like early got into Twitter, but Twitter is kind of like the place you go to, to watch arguments happen and start the arguments and take parts in arguments. And I'm thinking last night, I kind of get rid of my Twitter account because that's me keeping a foothold in the world. Yeah, I definitely see that. I was going to chime in with, I find myself being more and more focused, you know, every day, every, every week, every month, every year on thinking about things above. I've noticed that I'm becoming more and more alienated in social situations, people that I'm around at my job or even in my own family. It almost seems like I'm in la la land, I guess you could say, is the way people kind of are like looking at me when I'm talking, at least that's how I feel because I'm speaking so much about what I think is important and it has nothing to do with what's happening all around us, which would seem so concrete and factual to everybody else as what needs to get accomplished. Recommending that somebody pray for something and then looking at me like I have two heads, you know, out of 10 people that I offer to pray for them, maybe one will break down in tears and it's it's impactful or empowering to them. The more I'm focusing on Chris, the more I'm realizing that I'm the odd one out here. So I can only imagine how Paul felt or you know, Epiphras or any of these guys, you know. Well, that's just it, John. You ask, and again, I, I wasn't there and I certainly wasn't in Paul's mind, but I'm wondering, you know, how we feel and, and you are out there a lot more than I am and saying this and, you know, I'm living in this world and I try to remember my faith, try to remember to live in Christ. But I'm thinking that Paul, when he says that in Philippians, that he just, you know, divorced that old life, put it's a, a bunch of donkey dung. Nah, I don't think he was thinking that way as you and I. Certainly not like I think. I think that he really had forgotten all that life and all that he was focused on with that. He didn't even think people were looking at him like he had two heads or anything like that. Just the way he reads when you're reading him and the way he sounds when you listen to his words, I think he had forgotten all that. I could only aspire to get close to that. Yeah, right. Exactly. 
You know, I, I read this quote online the other day. It was on Instagram, and it said, if being Christian were easy, then everyone would do it. The fact of the matter is that people are selfish, entitled, and they chase the things that make them feel good. When I read that, I just was like, this is so true. When he spoke and said, pick up our cross, it's our burden to bear. But it's nothing compared to what Jesus went through. He was ridiculed and mocked the whole way. He helps people the whole way. He tried to keep it, you know, a secret up until it was the right time. He was betrayed by his own closest friend. He was denied by his own closest friend. Over and over again, he was mocked, spat on, stabbed, whipped. His own people traded him for what, a murderer? It, historically, right? They, they released a murderer out of prison for him. And to know full well, be it Daniel or Isaiah, where his own people would reject him. He's on his knees and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, please. He knew what was coming and he still walked full well into it. And then we read like, in these letters that say things like giving up your life for a friend is one of the greatest acts of love that you can do. And I mean, tell me that's not a direct callback to what Christ did for everyone. So he's a friend to all. He's a friend to everyone. You want to talk about supremacy of Jesus. He was there for the people that stabbed him. This is, to me, it's overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. The little tidbits that are found in these letters that all point to Jesus. Put yourself in that position of, say, like, you know that somebody, one of your friends, is they're going to betray you. How would you act in that situation? Would you still show them love or would you find a way to get them before they get you? Forces against them. Probably, you know? I'd probably act a lot different than Jesus did, unfortunately. How do we act when somebody betrays us, right? When when somebody takes advantage of us or borrows money, doesn't repay it back or, you know, fill in the blank of the betrayal that you feel in your life. Perspective was just abnormal. <laughs> you asked the question, Judah, how do we act? What emotion? Is it anger? Is it forgiveness? What will click in if somebody did that to us? Uh, you know, a whole bunch of things, a whole range of emotions, but would it be Jesus-like? I question myself on that. Yeah, and you know, he, you know, Jesus was a human being. He was God in human form, so he felt the pain, the emotional pain, the physical pain. He experienced it all. And to think about that, he forgave, he didn't even act like they did anything wrong. He forgave them before they even did it. And to know that he is God, that he had the forethought that all this would unfold. Yeah, John, you, you made me just think of something as you were talking there about the forgiveness. And I don't know if I've ever thought of this before, but yeah, even as he was being crucified, he was here to forgive everybody's sins so that even those people that were mocking the Roman soldiers or tore his garments apart and cast lots for his garments, the one criminal on the cross on the one side of him, everybody, he forgave them. He'd already done it. That's why he was dying. That, that just struck me for some reason. Thank you. It was that the two guys beside him, one of them was like, if you are truly the son of God, set us free. And the other one was like, you know, completely believed that he's the son of God. And Jesus went and said, I guarantee that I continue to best it. You will be with me in paradise. The guy is there. He's, he's dying. He's going to be dead within the day. And Jesus is like, because of what you did right now, you were forgiven. What did that guy even do? Was it a thief on the cross? Yeah, we commonly refer to him as a thief on the cross. I mean, so probably stole something, but... Robbers, yeah, robbers and thieves. The Romans didn't play, though. You know what I mean? No, yeah. no. Unlike the man that the Jews got released in place of Jesus, Barabbas, who was a murderer. Yeah. He was a known murderer, insurrectionist, led riots, and they released him versus Jesus. Is they crucified them for being thieves. Isn't the usual punishment they just take your hand off? That's in Singapore, not in Rome. What was his name, the murderer? Barabbas. Barabbas, right? Think about that. If Barabbas got out because of Jesus and then he watched him die 
Imagine the ramifications of what he went through seeing all this happen and actually watching him die. Like he even saved him. He was a literal person that Jesus literally died in his place. <laughs> yeah, and saved. Yeah. What are the ramifications of that? If they were crucifying thieves to death, what would have been the fate of him who was a murderer? They already talk about what happened with Barabbas after. I could be wrong on this. I thought I read where he just went on to lead other insurrections and doing what he was doing, you know, against the Romans and, and ended up getting killed. But I'm not totally sure on that. So it would be great like, if we found out, like, all of a sudden he turned his whole life around and became, like... <laughs> I'm not sure that happened, but I'll do some research on it again. Yeah, he's definitely not the focus of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's not get the twist of Anything else to add out to anybody in Colossians here? Yeah, I have one. Unless, John, did you have something? No, you go right ahead. Yeah, I'm looking again, John. You've got us focused on that chapter 3, so I'm going to go to the end of chapter verse 23 and it says work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the lord rather than for your people we heard that in ephesians and it's other places too remember that the lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and this is my favorite part and that the master you are serving is christ and you've been alluding to that john the way your life is going that the master you are serving is christ again uh, going back to that verse up there at 11 christ is all that matters Mm. Master, we are serving as Christ. That's mm. what stuck out to me. Do we work as if we're working for Christ? Yeah, just as Christ. I don't want to bring that up, Judah, because I had a bad answer for myself. It's probably <laughs> not all the time. I yeah, me too. I have a bad answer for that. Yeah. 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 So um, I'm glad you brought it up, Judah. I thought about that question. It's a good thing to remind yourself of when you're getting frustrated working on something. It's that you're doing this for the Lord. Doesn't seem as bad, easier than. The one with Jesus said that they're getting whipped and carrying the cross. Well, as we've learned throughout the Bible, and, and especially in the New Testament where Jesus talks, working is good. To have a living, to make a living, to earn money is good. And as we know, it's not money that's bad. It's, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And so if we remember that if we're working, making a living, taking care of our family and friends and doing charitable things, if we can remember this, that the master we're serving is Christ, that we're doing all this for Christ, if we can remember that all the time, we would be in a great place. Since we're here kind of in chapter three, I'm not sure how we skipped one and two, but uh, in chapter three here, just jam-packed. And I mean, kind of picking up where we left off a few moments ago, I think it just so rich in verse 12. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Where's your kindness t-shirt? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the thing. It's like, are we clothing ourselves? I mean, this just goes on and on. I mean, it just gets better and better. But just stopping right there from work. When I think about clothing myself, I think of this is something that I do in the morning, right? I wake up in the morning, I get ready for the day, and then I select the clothes that I'm going to wear, which is what it's how I'm going to present myself to the world. So it's, if you're going into the office as maybe Dave is to deal with customers or whatever else like that, you're going to dress in an appropriate way. If Johnny's going and he's going to do tattoos, he's going to dress an appropriate way. If Lenny is coming here and he's going to be working on a project, he's going to dress a certain way. If I have to go to a funeral today, I'm going to dress a certain way. So I'm examining the day and determining how I need to dress. Here, Paul is saying, okay, here's the clothes I want you to put on, guys. I want you to put on tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Skipping 
verse 13, not because it's not good, but just because I think it's a whole discussion in and of itself. Skipping verse 13 to the first part of 14, above all, though, this is the jacket you put on over everything. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And so just the visual I think of is getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth and say, okay, I'm going to put on my mercy. I'm going to put on my kindness. I'm going to put on some humility right now. I'm going to throw a dash of gentleness cologne on. I'm going to put some patience on and y'all let me put my coat of love on before I go out into this world. Even as I say these things, I'm feeling challenged because how many days do I get up and I'm putting on anger and grumpiness and frustration and being annoyed at something. And those are the clothes that I'm putting on knowing the situations that I'm going to rather than these clothes that Paul is encouraging us to wear. Every once in a while, I'll get like a thought and if I'm lucky enough, I'll be able to write it down. And I wrote this a couple of weeks ago. Some churches have a dress code. Heaven has a dress code too. It's not a code on how you dress your outside, your inside, clothe your soul with love. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I heard the story once. There's actually Nicky Gumble that I do the daily devotional. He it, he put it together, and he was telling some story about what he was first volunteering at the church. He was getting trained on how to help people out the park a lot. And some lady, she's running and she got keys, and she's trying to get to church on time. The guy looked at her and he goes, "That's all you can find to wear." Mm. Her face just completely changed. If she put her head down, if she turned around, walked away. He was talking about how that affected him. How he was so kind of disappointed in the guy. I would never do that. Right. Like, yeah. Churches, it isn't for the people who are already spiritually healthy. I mean, yeah, it's good to go there to stay spiritually healthy, but it's not for the people who show up and all oh, my life is falling apart and I really need to get there. And all I can find the weird is uh, right now a wrestling t shirt. All I can find is this wrestling t shirt. You know, I don't let them get to the door and it's, where's your suit? I wanted to talk briefly about chapter one, verse 24, because that's another thing that stood out to me. And like Judah mentioned, we kind of jumped right into some other stuff. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Just that first line, I now rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Mm -hmm. So the act of following Jesus, Jesus suffered for others. And here is Paul now rejoicing and suffering for others. I can't help but think that Jesus was rejoicing in what he did or what God did for all of mankind to give humanity a second creation, a second shot at the purpose for existence in regards to sacrificing this worldly life that we have, but that we are leaving behind for this new hidden life that is up in, in heaven with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. We should rejoice in our suffering and give thanks in our suffering and celebrate that we are suffering, you know? So it's just, it's an interesting perspective to think that, you know, it feels like you're losing so much being alienated for being Christian or you're not speaking of worldly things. So you stand up like a sore thumb, but in that alienation, there is, when you switch your perspective to celebrating, especially at church or fellowship or Bible study, it's like you're around like-minded people talking about the specific wording here for the sake of his body, which is the church. And we hear that often in scripture that the church is the bride of Christ or the body of Christ. You know, the way a wife gives herself over to her husband. I don't know. It's just, it's nice to be able to think that I can turn my perspective into a celebration rather than watching the death of my old self, so to speak, which it's not like I've even achieved it. It's just the way the spirit is working in my life. In the classic book, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, he talks about suffering and his perspective was not 
one of even asking God for deliverance from suffering, but he had a lot of physical ailments and he literally was thanking God for them because every time he felt pain, it reminded him to be aware of God's presence in his life. And so he was grateful for the pain because it continually reminded him that God was there with him. And how foreign is that concept from us, right? All we want, all we pray for is comfort. God, give me comfort. God, my elbow is a little sore. Take this soreness away. I don't want any discomfort. And Brother Lawrence got to the place, and it's the same place that was obviously gotten to first by the Apostle Paul here saying, I'm glad what I'm suffering. I'm glad for this because it's reminding me to be aware of God's presence. It's reminding me of what God is doing in this world and this church. I know we have to wrap up, but I just wanted to comment on springboard off of what John had just referred to in chapter one, there are 24. I went down a little bit further, John, where I underlined or highlighted in 26, Paul was talking about the message that was kept secret for centuries. And then go to the end of 27. And my book says, this is chapter one, verse 27, the second part of it. And this is the secret. I love the way he says it. And this is the secret. I'd love to, I want to read that in the original language. You're going to say it like this. And this is the secret. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. There it is again, the supremacy of Christ that he's talking about. Christ lives in you, and this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Christ lives in you. Christ is all that matters. That's all he's talking about in this. Again, I love that. Yes, I, I looked at that too, John, but I went down a bit further on that one. Now, that's how I'll end that my comment. Christ lives in you. That's the secret. And so powerful. It really is powerful to hear it spoken. But there's a lot going on here, but it all central comes back central to Christ and how he is the secret and he is the one who uh, we are called to follow. And, and so many people, I think, get their faith in Christianity all jacked up and backwards, thinking that somehow we have to do all these things in order to get the approval of God. And Paul's saying, no, 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 come to Jesus first. And then out of the abundant life that you are living, now that you are living with Christ, now let's flee all of these other things. Now let's live a life that is honorable to God, put to death all these things that have been dragging us down for far too long. And it's just that centrality of Jesus and how Jesus is central to our belief in putting him first in all things. I think that we've uh, in many ways barely scratched the surface here in Colossians, only four chapters. We've only discussed really a, a few verses here, and I think there's a lot more that we need to dive into detail here. So I'm posing that we continue on here in Colossians. Let's go through it another, you know, every day, you know, seven times, four chapters, pretty quick read, and let's continue to drill in on some of these things and really making that personal application. Like, how does this apply to me? Obviously, two kind of sides to, to reading scripture. And I was having a discussion with somebody with this the other day, the first side of understanding scripture is understanding the original intent. And that's like without any personal application, that's without any any allegory, that's without anything. It's been, I heard a debate the other day talking about David and, and people were kind of being critical of both sides. People will preach, oh, I'm David and I'm fighting obstacles in my life, right? I'm fighting the Goliaths in my life. And then people are saying, well, really, that's not the right way to bring that. Really, we need to look at that as David is representative of Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. And I'm like, hold on, hold up. Both of you need to back up because really the story was about David and Goliath. Like, so we got to start there with the historical context. Who is this really about? It's about a literal guy named David and he was fighting a literal giant, you know? And so in this context, first we start by reading, this is written by Paul to the church in Colossae. 
and understanding that. And then from there, once we understand the original intent of the author, then we can begin to go through and pick up these nuggets of wisdom, these things that do bring personal application because as scripture says, the word of God is full of living power. So it's the only book in all of history that has that living power that can still to this very day, thousands of years after it was penned, can speak into the depths of our lives and soul and bring conviction and bring healing and bring guidance to our issues that we face today. That being said, let's continue on here in Colossians and we'll pick back up next week with our discussion of that. Well, we hope that you enjoyed our discussion today on the Thriving in the Word podcast. We invite you to leave a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also consider sharing it on social media. We can't wait to be back together with you at the Thriving in the Word podcast.